and all my fabulous listeners and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. We're here to chat all about the wonderful world of sex, sexuality and the body. As usual, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm always delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, trans rights and of course me with the sex podcast. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It really does help to keep the mics on or if you feel like it and would be super helpful if you pop over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to reach out about the podcast, you can DM on Instagram and Twitter at Glow West Podcast. So today we are taking another deep dive into the topic of consent and I have such an excellent educator in this area to talk to you all about it today. So my guest today is Phoenix Mandel, who is an ASECT certified sexuality educator and ASECT are the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists. So Phoenix has been a sexuality educator and consultant since 2006, delivering workshops on consent, LGBTQIA plus issues, sex and body positivity, BDSM, ethical non-monogamy and other areas of sexual health and rights. Phoenix teaches classes internationally and currently resides in Los Angeles. They have an intersectional and activist approach with a mission to make sex education more queer. And you can learn more about Phoenix's offerings over on her link tree, which I will put in the show notes at the end before I butcher your link tree link there, Phoenix. How are you today? How are you keeping? I'm good. I'm very uh, excited to be on your on glow west and and chatting with you again we've had some amazing conversations that probably for the for the good of the viewers or the listeners we should have recorded but it's nice to be talking about models of consent with you today glad to be here we will come back to those other chats further down the line and yeah i wish they were just in person rather than over zoom but we can't have everything yet, I suppose. We, we're nearly I there. love Ireland, so I'm I'm ready whenever you'd like to have oh, me out that gosh, way. It would be so good. Like, so yeah, any listeners who want Phoenix to pop over and do some workshops, let me know because that would be tons of fun. That would be fantastic. So yay. So you do a ton of workshops. Uh, you know, you, you've got a massive focus on a huge range of stuff from kink and BDSM and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. But today we're going to focus a little bit on consent which of course covers all those topics anyway so that's really good (laughs) because consent applies to everybody so I suppose if we start with you know if you can talk to us a little bit about some of the different models that exist for talking about consent because sometimes we say oh consent means yes and no means no and it's like Mm, we need to go a little bit deeper than that sometimes. So it is it yeah. is a bit more nuanced than that. And yeah. uh, we we have these simpler models as a jumping off point. But I I do want to just right up top acknowledge that when we talk consent being easy or consent being simple broadly, it's really calling people in to participation in the process, letting them know that it's not. Uh, impossible, scary, this, that, or the other thing, but consent is complicated. It is complicated. The ways that you establish it in different scenarios varies. People are coming from a lot of different backgrounds, uh, even within the same country in terms of their, the family culture they were brought up in and the kind of sexuality education they received. And of course, all of the places consent applies that have nothing to do with sex. Yeah, that's really so, important to remember. Yeah. Yeah, I want to just start there as a yeah. foundational <laughs> point. It's a good point. <laughs> and, um, you know, I know much of your listenership is where you are in Ireland. So I also want to talk about uh, the National University of Ireland Galway, which has this incredible program called Active Consent. Uh, much, much more information can be found about that with you, of course, or by going to uh, the Active Consent website, but their model that they use is OMFG. Uh, And this is typical of models where you'll have uh, some letters thrown together and everything has a different meaning that you could go go quite deeply on. So the OMFG model stands for ongoing, mutual, and freely given. And one of the great, uh, several great things about this model is that it points to consent of everybody involved. It points to this ongoing process because consent is revocable. 
It's not like you get your one yes and then never have to touch base again. And freely given speaks a lot to someone's someone's state of mind, so, someone's well-being when they're giving that consent, and also, you know, all of the other things that attach to consent, like that it's informed, like that uh, a coercive yes is not a real yes, a maybe is not a yes, etc. The power differentials happening, say, between an employer and an employee, do not make uh, sexual consent possible. And so that would not be a freely given. So this model covers a pretty wide range and they have some amazing resources in terms of toolkits and drama, which I think is going to going to be a film sometime and all those sorts of things. So check them out. That's right. That's right there at home. Uh, across the ocean or uh, in, in other communities, because certainly this exists in Ireland as well, I find that the BDSM community's models of consent are really helpful to expand out and apply to other types of consensual engagement between people because it covers things people may be a little bit anxious or nervous about, but that they are still consenting to. It looks at how to reduce risk and all of that kind of thing. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about those. Sure. Well, I think that's a really important statement there when you're saying reducing risk, because no sexual activity is risk free. There's a risk of something, whether it's physical risk or emotional risk or something like that. It's, it's like there's no such thing as safe sex. If you're interacting with another human, it's safer sex. You know, it's never going to be absolutely really risk free. So I'm really glad that you said that there. So there's several different models within within the kink world and BDSM world that look at consent. So talk us through that. Let's start with the SSC, if anyone hasn't heard of that before. What does that look like? Sure, this is one of the uh, sort of foundational models that gets discussed the most. It's an older model, but you also have to start somewhere. And it's the one that people tend to have the most familiarity with. So SSC stands for safe, sane, and consensual. And it hits all the, all the good points where you wanna keep things as safe as possible. Um, there's a, a consideration of uh, consequence and other people's well-being in the universe. And that's kind of where the same bit comes in. Um, and consent, you all of the things that we've mentioned so far, that it's informed, that it's uh, freely given, that it's revocable, et cetera. So that's that's where it all that's where it all began in terms of these models. Is one of the an issue there? Oh, sorry, I'm talking yes. about you there. No, absolutely. That's okay. the next thing I was going to say. So you're right. You're right on track. Yeah. So one of the problems with this model, um, for one thing, the safe bit, we've already talked about how these things can be made safer, but nothing's just universally safe. Um, and the same bit, BDSM uh, identities and activities and relationships have been pathologized for a very, very, very long time. And it was just the most recent edition of the DSM, the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic manual that, there, that clinicians use when evaluating mental health. Uh, it was only very recently that uh, sadism and masochism were, were dropped from being paraphilias. So it's, uh, it's an ongoing and evolving process, but the idea of what's sane or not, um, even outside of a BDSM context, uh, let you know, just let's take it to a sexual context, really varies a lot by yeah. people's values. Some people um, absolutely love rim jobs, can't get enough of them. Other people are like, but why would you put your mouth in that place? And so those those two groups of people might find that uh, they have different notions of if that's a sane activity. Yeah, for sure. And I think like that, it's a very there's a cultural aspect of that as well. Like some people might go, it's not sane to have sex with lots of different people or to have different play partners and stuff like that. So you know that that's a very subjective descriptor, not really too helpful. I Absolutely. And to share a, a very brief personal story of that nature, 
uh, I was in South Africa working an event. Uh, one of my crewmates was an Irish man uh, who was also working that event. We ended up playing together and during our negotiation uh, chat, so you should always negotiate before you uh, sexually engage with someone or before you do BDSM play with them and things like that. I sort of set all my, all my little entry points and identities and such. And then he said, you're gonna have to give me a minute. I'm a farm boy from Ireland. Oh, bless. <laughs> and it was adorable. Uh, but also I got, you know, the idea that I was very, uh, I was really overwhelming him in that moment. So well, that's, that's my true life story yeah, of that. <laughs> that's not natural. Like we have a long way to go a lot of the time when it comes <laughs> to communication. I think, I think, you know, American kink scene is quite far removed from a lot of regular Irish life in that sense of, you know, I wish we were all as great as going, okay, here's what I will do and here's what I won't do. And here's what you should do and touch me here and don't touch me here. And like, We'd probably be a bit healthier overall, but look, we, we will work on that as, as we speak. But, um, <laughs> and it's, yeah. I think one of the tricks is to not approach it as a checklist, like, okay, did I do all of the things I was supposed to, but to approach it as um, a conversation in which you're both trying to create the ma- both or all, <laughs> depending on how many parties are involved, to create the maximally fun pleasurable, healthy, et cetera, time. And it, the, you know, it's not, it has to be this high gold standard every time. It's that really, really it's important to discuss sexual things with someone outside of the moment in which you're having sex uh, or the moment in which you're uh, engaging in some other physical contact. So you know, stripping that down a bit, that could look like, hey, person I'm about to have sex with, uh, here's what my, here's what my STI status is, here's when I was last tested, here's what my exposure partner involvement since then has been, how about you? And then if someone says, you know, if someone's very turned off by that, or they say, oh, well, I'm good, everything looks fine, then you don't play with that person. <laughs> well, that's a really great example of what informed consent is, because we hear that a lot and it, it, it's like, some people might not understand what informed consent actually is. So you've just given us a great example there of you have the information and then you can make a decision or not. So, you know, in that situation, I wouldn't be too keen to maybe get with that person because it means they haven't had an STI test and I'd go, this is not for me for and no shame and judgment in that. But it's just like, that's not for me. That's not the safety regulations I would like to see sounds like a building and it's also about managed risk right you might alter the activities you're going to do or the um, barrier methods and safer sex protocols that you want to have in place I think one of the one of the really uh, damaging I was going to say lingering but we still all are swimming in this water of uh, STI stigma and, and a lot of erotophobia and sex negativity Um, one of the things that is very challenging is that people, uh, within this absolutely inappropriate, we need to figure out how to retrain ourselves and kill this thing model of clean means STI free and, and dirty means, uh, STI positive. People have this sense that like, well, if they're, uh, if everything looks okay down there, if they're if they're not too promiscuous or slutty, everything is fine and good. And the and one of the problems of making of using words like clean and dirty, other than that it's um, incredibly demeaning and and doesn't really reflect uh, it doesn't tell you the information that you need to have. Uh, is that people start to associate it with goodness and badness. Well, I'm a good person and I make good choices. So it's all good here. 
or, well, that person was a slut. And so look what happened. And many people contract things like uh, HSV-1, oral herpes, in childhood by being kissed by a um, an adult uh, relative who happens to be having an outbreak. These aren't all, all of the things that we throw in the like um, sexually transmitted illnesses bucket aren't necessarily sexually transmitted. And a lot of people just aren't aware of what's going on in their body. And so it's important to keep a metric, to, to test regularly, to approach conversations with partners who may have an STI um, or when you have an STI, you're, you're dealing with yourself with compassion, with inf- with information so that that person isn't solely responsible for letting you know how, um, you know, HSV can be managed so that it's not, so there's very, very, very low chance of transmission Yeah, for sure. Um, and things like that. So yeah. I would add that layer to the conversation just to consider like, okay, well, what if they have tested recently and their answer is this, what would you like to do? Kind of. uh, Yeah, that's a great point. Extra step. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's just such a nice way of doing things that that sees the humanity in people as well. So I think that's really nice. So, so that's part of that communication aspect. So you said that SSC was more of an older model of consent in the kink community. And then you also also mentioned RAC, which is risk aware consensual kink. So talk to us about that, that approach to things. Yeah. So RAC is slightly newer and you'll see, you know, comparing those models that safe was changed to risk aware in acknowledgement that these, some of these activities aren't necessarily safe, just like walking across the street isn't necessarily safe. And you, um, you pay attention to what the risks are and you do what you can to mitigate those. So in the walking across the street example, perhaps this is using a crosswalk instead of crossing in the middle of the road when it seems slow uh, before someone comes plowing through. (laughs) Uh, So the risk aware bit um, is that update. Uh, The C is consent, you still got that in there. And then kick was added to express a, a wide range, a diversity of approaches and activities and interests and identities that are within BDSM. It's not just people whipping each other, or it's not just people telling each other what to do. So that uh, was sort of a broadening method to put more things into that consent bucket so that people are, it increases people's awareness that it's not just impact play that you have to negotiate. It's the things that you call someone or the, you know, the vibe of a scene and things like that. And in in a sexual context where I see that come up the most often is when people talk about the kind of dirty talk they like, uh, which is another practice I would really encourage in the sexual consent arena. Some people are, are really a big fan of uh, somewhat degrading or objectifying dirty talk. It's a lot of fun in a safe container where you know that that person doesn't actually think that you're insert, <laughs> insert type here. Whatever name you're going for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And some people really love worship play in their dirty talk and to be told how amazing they are and how good they taste and this kind of thing. And um, while there's a fun to sort of exploring and seeking and finding and working it out. You know, you don't want to give people the entire roadmap. There's a lot more satisfaction and um, room to explore if you do have some conversation about kind of starting points there. Yeah, because you don't want to ruin everything by saying one word that the other person, you know, interprets as awful. And then that ruins the whole thing. So you could just avoid it by saying, hey, don't use these words, or I really want you to use X words or whatever happens to be. So you're reminding me there of some of the conversations that came out around um, Fifty Shades of Grey and how like they had like an actual contract, like paper copy drawn up. I don't know how many pages it was. And um, I think the only major bit was oh she got a safe word and then it was like you can't do this and you can't do this and that's 
not necessarily uh, great in many ways, but not necessarily really reflective of how consent and negotiations happen in the in the BDSM world, right? Absolutely. Um, we do, uh, particularly people in long-term power exchange relationships do sometimes use contracts or write things down. If you're doing a consensual non-consent scene with someone, you want to have it really, really clear that everybody wants that scene and what the parameters are. And Fifty Shades of Grey is in, that relationship is abusive. It is not a healthy BDSM dynamic. It really reinforces a lot of uh, misunderstandings around kink community, like that all kinky people are traumatized and enacting their trauma on others and um, sort of privileges dominance over submission, which is not how that arrangement goes. And people who are interacting with it that way aren't uh, should maybe take a moment to reflect <laughs> on why they think one is better than the other or more powerful than the other. And uh, all around uh, horrible, horrible writing and storytelling. If you, <laughs> yeah, like, if you like erotic literature, let me recommend to you uh, the Sleeping Beauty, the Claiming of Sleeping Beauty trilogy, or some of the other much, much better written <laughs> erotic literature out There's there. A lot out and there. it's okay if uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was the thing that got you interested in kink and that you're exploring and learning. That's wonderful. Please do not model your kink play after the things exhibited in that movie very wise advice yeah no for sure it's just yeah like it reminds me of how people think oh consent is like literally drawn up contract or an app or something like that and it's that's kind of missing the part that consent is revocable and reversible at any moment and just because it's written down or ticked on a box it doesn't mean you can't go back on that and change that literally two seconds after you have ticked that box. So it's always important yeah. to remember that part. Um, and you've also mentioned the the four C's, was it, um, of yeah. BDSM kind of related consent? Sure. Before I get into that, I just want to mention, uh, respond to your comment briefly, which is that con- contracts that people actually use in BDSM communities, which is is... I don't want to say it's rare, but it's it's it tends to be very particular to certain kinds of play or power exchange dynamics that are ongoing. Have built-in check-ins, or if they're healthy, they have built-in check-ins. Like this is for these three months, and we will renegotiate. And of course, you can renegotiate before then. But the idea is that whether someone's decided they need to talk about it or not, you have this structure in which to check in. Okay. Uh, similarly, in uh, ongoing scenes where people have negotiated at the beginning of the scene and now they're playing. Check-ins are an essential part of making sure that everything's going okay and everyone's having a good time. And there are ways to do that that are within the flow of the scene. Some people feel like, don't ask me, it takes me out of my headspace. But there are absolutely uh good in-scene ways to do that. And check-ins are important for uh, sexual activity as well. You know, if something if something seems painful, if someone is uh, maybe needing more lube, lube is an incredibly important tool for all kinds of sex. And it's not an indicator of a problem. No. And it will feel better and you'll be able to do more if you use it liberally. And I also want to make a pitch for using the right kinds of lube for the right kind of activity. Yes, very important. Um, so when engaging in anal, please don't use any numbing creams. Uh, lubricants for anal tend to be a little bit thicker. Maybe they're, um, I really like hybrid lubes that are uh, part water-based and part silicone that are at a low enough silicone level that they're good for use with toys and condoms and things like that. Liquid has an amazing uh, hybrid lube. It's the purple label. Uh, For vaginal penetration, water-based and unscented and (laughs) 
<laughs> no glitter. Having, <laughs> yeah, not having too much of the sugar stuff and whatnot important. I also really like liquids, uh, water-based option. You have you have other options that are good for good for both things. Um, Bad Dragon is a toy company that makes a very thick uh, cum loop, sort of to uh, to replicate the the feeling and the sensation of cum, which people like for certain kinds of play. It's also just a great sexual activity lube. And um, Boy Butter is a wonderful brand specifically for anal, and they have a water based type and a a non-water-based type. And so you want to look at, are, are the lubes you're using safe, uh, designed for the activity in mind? Yeah, do they have good quality ingredients? How do you feel about the texture and consistency? And know that people can absolutely be allergic to lubricants. Yeah. So if point. you're experiencing any itching or burning or general discomfort with penetration, with sexual activity, you may be reacting to the lubricant you're using. And unfortunately, a lot of condom companies with the pre-lubricated condoms don't use very high quality lubricant on those condoms. So sometimes there's a little bit of a reaction happening there. Okay. Trojan brand tends to be uh, fairly good. I just also want to say I'm not sponsored by any of these companies, (laughs) just sharing uh, some resources. Although if any of these companies are listening and would like to sponsor me, (laughs) I go through a lot of lube and a lot of condoms (laughs) in my work and um, hit me up. Absolutely. Yeah, that was smooth. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. So we know we we have to talk about lube and and condoms. That's obviously important. Actually, that's a really good point of like, you know, if you're going to have sex with someone just saying, uh, you know, uh, what kind of lube do you want? Or, you know, what kind are you yeah. allergic to and stuff like that? That's all part of good communication, which is part of good consent. So it's all related. And, and part of great sex. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that approach this as like, oh, back in my day, or why does why can't we just do the thing and see what happens? And you will have more fun for a longer period of your life if you can practice this skill absolutely life is too short for fumbling around not knowing what we're doing (laughs) like let's just ask it's okay (laughs) and there's a lot of pressure on on this uh porn version of sex which doesn't show all the warm-up or the lubricating or the this and the that um and this idea that there's maybe something wrong if you need those things and again Lube is very healthy and normal and good to have as part of sex. Toy use, very healthy and normal and good to have as part of sex. Does not mean anything about your capacities as a partner. So again, just really want to highlight, emphasize, throw that up in big letters. That's the annoying thing about porn sometimes. I wish like it just showed the behind the scenes stuff because like I went to the sets of kink.com before when I was in San Francisco for an educational tour, which is very educational. And they have like those barrels, like, like, you know, the beer barrels or wine barrels of lube and they have like, like, they go through them like nothing. And it's like, show that on screen, then show people getting lube that would just be really really healthy and normal and we don't so people expect magical wetness to come out of nowhere and stay forever and it's like oh that's just not good so I think that one of the tricks there is that porn is not is while there is some more education oriented um edutainment we call it uh pornography there is also uh it's also not a teaching tool. I mean, you can use it as a teaching tool, but it, in its intention, in its purpose, it's um, meant to be stimulating and erotic and uh, take you to a certain place. And their role is not as a model of how sex should be or go. And it's not um, inherently educational in nature. And I think one, I think it's really not porn's responsibility uh, to provide that. I do wish that, that there was some amount better modeling in porn, um, or that there was an option for porn where maybe you like one type of thing, but you don't actually like to see people 
having uh, terrible consent interactions going into it, which yeah. is part of the fantasy. But <laughs> for me, I can never turn that off. It's like, well, now this video is done. So there's some really <laughs> wonderful porn out there. And I do think there are critiques um, that are reasonable of, of porn industry. And these are hardworking people that are making content where it's demanded. And yeah, ultimately, I just, I just want to say as, as an educator, that it's, it's educators jobs and society's job and organizations job who take on this mantle to provide that. And it's not the responsibility of, of content creators. Absolutely not. No. And sex workers deserve their rights and the recognition and their money also as yeah. well. So absolutely. I'm support porn, pay for your porn, pay for your porn, support porn, Always support good. sex workers, um, etc. I'm going to view you back on the topic of consent. Yes. Four C's. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, C's. all of these are important. They are they important are. bits. Yeah. But we will. Uh, we have so much to, to talk about exactly <laughs> no you, you're going to be a returning guest anyway for sure so yeah but for now so the four c's model um was developed as an alternative to ssc and rack as a new bdsm negotiation framework um and even though it started in that context it's also being used um expanded out to be used in other forms of communication just like we discussed uh, was possible with the earlier two so the four C's are consent, communication, caring, and caution. And these were developed by folks at the Center for Positive Sexuality here in California. Um, they also have the Journal of Positive Sexuality. And this is where this was initially started to be uh, flushed out. So when they talk about the consent piece, they're talking about being free of coercion, um, sort of safety in, in stating what you want or don't want, uh, active discussion, negotiation, um, the idea that just because you're discussing these things doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do them right then with that person, uh, and the revocable bit, etc. I like that approach. It just seems a little bit more comprehensive, maybe, than some of the others. Sure. And I will say that the more complicated and nuanced a model gets, the trickier it is for people to really like latch onto that and, and integrate it. And it's valuable to have, it's valuable to have those thinking points. You know, not a lot of discussion of consent conversation talks about active listening <laughs> and that's part of their communication bit. And it's wonderful to have that. They also talk about background and cultural sensitivities and body language and um, these are all really important things to reflect on. And they have some great, um, classes on this topic, the center for positive sexuality, but ultimately the, I would say the overall shape of the model that's goes a little bit deeper than earlier models is this idea of an ethic of care. And of course, people in, in using SSC or RAC you know, are, are using caution, are using caring. There's this uh, sort of ethical idea of to hurt, but not to harm. If you're engaging in play where you, where someone wants to be hurt and you want to hurt them, but you're not doing harm in terms of uh, ongoing damage, both to their person or to their ability sure. to function yeah. in and society. And it's not abuse, it's consensual violent activity but in a uh, well, consensual way <laughs> yeah i mean so so it's not really violent activity it uh the activities can look the same but some of the big distinguishing traits between abuse and healthy consensual bdsm activity have to do with um sort of this caretaking uplifting catharsis for the, for the people involved um, and that it's ultimately something that's empowering for people. Whereas in an abuse dynamic, um, there, there really is a focus on isolating someone and breaking them down and making them very, very dependent. And that is not the case for healthy consensual BDSM activities. Um, but going the four C's model going a little bit further into this 
larger ethic of care and um, bringing caution into it. You know, I think uh, taking it back into a sexual context, people often will move, will be very eager and will move quickly into an activity that they want to do. And if they'd gone a little bit slower with it, uh, it might land better in terms of making a connection point with the other person or take again, the example of anal sex, uh, anal sex can be a very pleasurable activity, but if you don't use enough lube or if you don't warm up or if you haven't been doing any kind of anal training or what have you, you're probably not going to have a great time. Yeah, that's a really so, good point. Yeah, 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 that's a great model. It's got a lot of bits to it. Similar to the OMFG model, I encourage people to look further into it with the organizations involved or to uh, contact me for additional information. And uh, those are all, those are the, that's the BDSM section. Although again, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know I sound like a broken record, but this applies outside of BDSM scenarios. Yeah. So in the broader sexual consent context, there's this dynamic of um, permission seeking and permission giving and this, what what's allowable or what's not allowable. And that does have its function, but I like to teach consent and look at consent as a collaboration. What do we want to do or not want to do together to have the best possible time? I love that idea, the collaboration. I just think that's so nice because that's, it's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's what it is for some folks, right? But we're not broadly cultural, you know, universally taught to approach it that way, which is why, you know, I teach a collaborative consent class. Well, even like the Um, language of that, like of society, it's like you get sex, you know, or like, you know, or you give sex. Or it's competitive, you score. Yeah, yeah. Or you get laid. It's not, it's not giving we don't really say give so much in it in that aspect. It's something that's done to you or, you know. Yes, yeah, you, you take it or you, um, or you give it, but not in like a gift way, more yeah. like in a, a acquiescing sort yeah, of way. Like a prize to be won or something. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And all those terrible uh, scenes that we have uh, around, you know, marriage and premarital sex and uh, what it means for femme folks to be, uh, you know, to have sort of a hungrier sexual appetite and what it means for mask folks. And it's all very problematic, which is (laughs) why it's wonderful that we're, we've moved to a place where we can at least, you know, take a, take a examination of that and have a a deeper conversation. So the wheel of consent is similar to the four C's in that it combines a lot of ideas to have a broader, more complex, more nuanced view of this, which again, very, very healthy, very, very good, and can take a bit longer for people to get or integrate or acclimate to. So the Wheel of Consent is a model that was developed by Dr. Betty Martin, and it it will be posted with this episode. But uh, basically you have different quadrants. So one of the things are the things that you are doing. One of the sections is uh, what you're doing. Another section is what they're doing. Then uh, you have giving a gift, like it's for them and receiving a gift is for you. Uh, And then within that, you have a section for um, actions to benefit others. So that's the serve or giving section. Uh, You have actions to benefit yourself. So that's the take section. You have um, sort of this receiving, will you uh, accepting of of that gift section. And then finally you have this allowing, like, yes, you may section. Uh, So there's, there's a lot of ways that these intersect and meet and examples of how to 
uh, ask for that. There's a, also a little bit of a, a Jungian, here's the shadow side of this item uh, layer added. If anyone is uh, really into depth psychology, I think they'll, they'll probably they'll find that, that interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and Ultimately, I, I like that it takes um, takes receiving and gifting into it. I do not love the, the stand-in words that they've selected uh, for those middle bits of, uh, you know, accept or allow or take or serve. I, serve maybe is a little better, but um, I'd love to just see that bit as giving and the accept bit as receiving because those words have a different connotation and emotional weight yeah and this is where we we get again to that all of this is about communication and language and different language will work for different folks and you want to be really mindful of uh the weight of the language that you're using um take the word slut for example Mm. is calling themselves a slut in a in a reclaiming positive way uh that is that's a reclamation that's positive for them Someone who, if, if someone else were to call them a slut in a demeaning way and to say, oh, well, but you call yourself that, that's not, that's not really how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Autonomy and consent <laughs> coming into that there pretty yeah. fast. Yeah. I think- we're looking, you know, given that it's Pride Month while we're recording this, you know, looking at some of the language use in uh, the LGBTQIA plus community. Queer is something that's been reclaimed by many folks. Um, often younger generation folks and older generation folks who remember the times in which, um, you know, that word was dangerous. That was an indicator of a serious lack of safety. They don't want to be called that. And, you know, there's a, there's a mindfulness in referencing if you say queer community, or if you say LGBTQIA plus community, um, and labels are self applied identity labels really can only be dictated by the person they are about and so that's important to consider also in ter- in terms of consent you know this person is my partner or spouse therefore i'm allowed to mm, not really mm-hmm. <laughs> you maybe don't have to do this extensive a check-in negotiation every time you have a, a sexual engagement and consent is ongoing and revocable even in partnership (laughs) yeah that's a really good point actually because the idea of you know consent is is also valid in long-term relationships gets missed a lot of the time by say some media delivery of the message of consent sometimes it's viewed as like in the context of a hookup of oh you need to ask for consent first and some people forget about the long-term relationship aspect that consent needs to just be as valid a part of that as with someone that you've known for 20 minutes and you're going to hook up with them and it's a drunk situation like sometimes the long-term thing is like the two of you being lazy in bed on a Sunday morning and you know that's when it comes into it so it's a very different scenario there like why do you think that aspect gets left out of the conversation a lot of the time oh this is a complex one um some some components uh, this is not an exhaustive list. I think long-term partnership is often uh, considered sexless or uh, that you're not engaging in the kind of way that would would really require any kind of check-in. It's just that regular old stuff. I think that we also engage with romance broadly, globally. Um, from a place of ownership, our partner belongs to us. We don't want to share them. It's a sign of our healthy dynamic if we're jealous and possessive because that means we really care. All of these are very toxic ideas, which is not to say that um, people can't be consciously monogamous or that they can't feel very, very, very connected to their partner and and want sort of the romantic idea of belonging. But ultimately, we don't own each other. And engaging possessively doesn't give 
it can, um, it can inhibit freedom around consent. And that's true with um, people's porn watching habits. That's true with people having uh, uh, friends of a gender that their partner doesn't like them having friendships with. It can relate to someone having a, a, a love of long-term solo backpacking trips and their partner not liking that they're alone backpacking and that being a big part of their life and needing to negotiate that. So I, I think that's the possessiveness that uh, really is promoted in the language that we use around romantic attachment and this idea that everything needs to be new and changing all the time to be exciting and hot and that long-term partnership sex is not exciting and hot. I think those play a role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Complicated and a lot going on there, I suppose, in, <laughs> in that aspect. But always really important because I think, yeah, people think consent is a conversation just for young people and it's not it's for the long-term married people it's for the people hopefully still having sex in their 70s and 80s and 90s and and beyond if you can manage having sex yeah I mean that's that's another area that that socially we uh don't interact with very well you know sex and aging and there's a lot of misinformation there about how our bodies change and what that means for sex as we get older. Um, there's also that generational element of that not being a thing that people just talked about. And certainly that's cultural as well. So everybody needs consent education. Everybody needs sexuality education. Whatever age you are, no matter what you've had already, this is a good ongoing conversation to be part of. And it's good to check out alternate perspectives. And maybe you don't integrate those. Maybe you don't say, ah, this is the way. Uh, it's good to hold some of these things a little bit lightly, but it's really, really important to be engaging with it. And also this idea that you don't need to negotiate as much in long-term partnership presupposes that your partner has access to all of the information that they need to be able to make uh, good choices regarding what you want or don't want. And people certainly wish to be open with their partners, but we, we have a lot of baggage socially around our sexual wants and needs, particularly where fetish is concerned, but also where uh, sexual orientation or romantic orientation is concerned. Some people worry that if they um, tell their partner that their orientation is different than they might've supposed or then they, than the orientation they identified with before, that that partner will worry about them cheating or will be disgusted with that and not wanna be with them. This comes up uh, very often in um, gender transition situations, but also, uh, you know, bisexual femmes are uh, fetishized and bisexual mask types are stigmatized and, um, certainly I've coached a number of, uh, cis women who are heterosexual about why it's not the end of the world for their boyfriend to be bisexual. And, uh, you know, those are all important considerations as well in long-term relationships. Yeah. I think there, there's a lot in that, isn't there? So it's, we'll have to come back on another episode to, <laughs> to kind of dive into all those things, but I think yeah like it's there's so much there and like you said it, it's complicated and I think you're a fab guest for looking at the, the complicated <laughs> nature of things so we might have you back on for another episode about gender and its complications and all this or its perceived complications in, in some areas so um absolutely happy to and and bringing it back to the consent piece um you know we've talked a bit about consent in a relationship context in a kink context in a sex context Consent really applies everywhere. Uh, it applies to hugs. It applies <laughs> to the kinds of compliments you're giving someone. You wanna be attentive to how you're engaging with someone in a way that feels safe. And also good consent practices do not entitle you to anything. If you say, oh, I got the phrase just right, nailed it, give me my prize. That's not, that's not quite how that works. 
yeah it, it's it's a lot more <laughs> alive and complex <laughs> than that I suppose so um but it's a good start for people to learn about like the different models that you said here today and then apply that to their actual human life that's a little bit more complicated and stuff so definitely an interesting one um Phoenix where can people find you if they want to learn some more about this because you do teach um on you know topics such as consent and I think for some people that's a great way to learn more so than you know a podcast or a book or whatever happens to be people like that interactive approach sometimes and I do use those resources in my teaching but it's it's it is helpful to have a guide or a sounding board so uh I do uh one-on-one education and larger classes I also do uh coaching and counseling Uh, I'm not a therapist I am an educator, but I I do do uh, coaching and counseling for individuals and couples and expanded partner groups. And the best place for people to find me uh, is is my link tree. So that's um, HTTPS colon backslash backslash L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E backslash Phoenix Mandel. P-H-O-E-N-I-X-M-A-N-D-E-L. And that'll have all of the my upcoming classes that are available for sign up. It'll have all of the social media accounts where I exist on the internet. Um, if people want to check out my uh my Amazon book wish list, I'm always adding more sexuality education books. You might find something interesting for yourself on there, or or you could send me a book. Um uh, in addition to that, I my Gmail is a good way to reach me. So it's uh, Phoenix, P-H-O-E-N-I-X dot Mandel and M-A-N-D-E-L at gmail.com. I do get a lot of inquiries. So if you uh, haven't heard back from me in about a week from your initial email, feel free to send me another one. Perfect. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's a lot going on in your inbox at times. <laughs> so brilliant. Listen, Phoenix. It's a wild been, place in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's been fantastic ch- chatting to you and learning about those different kinds of models. And I hope that people are a little bit more equipped now to dive into consent a little bit more and, and kind of look at it in those kind of nuanced terms. So thank you for bringing your wonderful knowledge to the podcast today. Thank you. This was really fun. There's always we always have more to talk about than we have time to talk about it in. And uh, I I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Thanks for everyone listening. Fab. Thanks, Mel. And thanks, Mel, to all the listeners as well. Like we said at the top of the hour, if you want to get in touch, the Instagram and Twitter is Aklo West Podcast. If you feel like supporting, that would be lovely. And that's patreon.com forward slash tortoise And otherwise, I will see you next week.